Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Now this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 118 on this Resurrection Sunday. Now this psalm is a very important psalm, and yet not a... It's not a psalm that's familiar to many people. In fact, this psalm is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament after Psalm 110. And this psalm was also a psalm that was dear to many martyrs that even when they faced death, often the, the, many of the words of this psalm would be on their lips and it would bring them comfort even as they faced death. In fact, this was the most favorite psalm of the great reformer Martin Luther, and he had some of the verses from this very psalm etched on, his, on the very walls of his study. And he would call this his favorite psalm, that uh, you know, even if everyone else around him failed, this was a psalm that he could hold on to. Now this psalm, Psalm 118, is part of what's called as the Hallel Psalms, the Hallel Egyptian Psalms. Uh, And those psalms are the psalms between Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And these psalms were sung particularly during a lot of the festivals of the Hebrews, and particularly during the week of the Passover and during the Passover meal as well. In fact, particularly as they would sing these Hallel Psalms, Psalm 113 to Psalm 118, during the Passover week many times, particularly at the Passover meal, they would first, before they would have the meal, they would sing the first few psalms, and after they'd finished the meal, they would sing the last couple of psalms, which would be Psalm 117 and and Psalm 118, which is the psalm that we're going to look at. And what's interesting is that this psalm is highlighted in the Passion Week of Christ. You remember... Uh, when Jesus was riding into Jerusalem, as he was entering into Jerusalem, we read in Matthew 21 and verse uh, 9 where it says, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And this was a quote from Psalm 118. And And think of it, this was the Passover week. And so they were singing uh, some of the Hallel songs, and it happened to be this one that they were singing. Then you turn to Matthew 21 and verse 42. We know that this psalm was on Jesus' mind as well as he confronts the religious leaders of the day during that Passion Week. And he tells the uh, leaders about the parable of the tenants. 
And then he quotes from this psalm again in Matthew 21 and 42, and we'll look at that further in detail later in this sermon. And there's another place where Jesus quotes uh, Psalm 118. Uh, The reference uh, slips my mind at the moment. But then lastly, we will see You know, at the end of the Passover meal, when God institutes uh, the how to observe the Lord's Supper, we read in Matthew, uh, pardon me, Mark 14. This is after they uh, drank the wine and broke bread. We read in Mark 14, right after that, verse 26. It says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So if these were part of the Hallel songs, and like I said before, particularly during the Passover meal, not just during the week, particularly during the, week, during the meal, if they sung the first few hymns, that is from 113 to 115 or 16, then after the Passover meal, they would be singing the last couple of hymns Last couple of Psalms, which is Psalm 117 and 118. So in other words, after the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper, as he's now going to the Mount of Olives, to the, to the Garden of Gethsemane, and then where then the next day, then he would be arrested and then crucified. The words of Psalm 18 were the last words that were on his mind as he was going toward Gethsemane, and then finally to Calvary. So here's what we're going to do this morning. Something a little bit different, but I trust that it would still honor God and it would be beneficial for you all. We're going to look at the meaning of what Psalm 118 says. But then we're also going to look at what it might have looked for Jesus as this psalm was impressed on him on his way to Calvary and beyond. And we'll see how Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment of the words of this psalm. Really, this psalm is about a kingly figure. We don't know when it was written. Some say it was before the exile. Some say it was after the exile. We we don't have an exact date. But regardless, what we can say is this, that this psalm seems to be the, it's talking about a kingly figure that had gone out into battle and he was faced by many enemies and the Lord provided deliverance. And because the Lord provided deliverance to this kingly figure, it also brought deliverance for his people. And then as a result, this kingly figure then is bringing his people into the city of God, into Jerusalem, to commune with the Lord and to sing praises to him. And really, it's a picture of even ultimate deliverance or salvation. And what's interesting is that this psalm was used in the early church 
particularly during the time of communion. And, and in some church settings during those early years, it was even used during Easter time. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. I've titled this morning's sermon as A Song for Resurrection Sunday. And we're going to look at this psalm under three headings. The call to give thanks in verses 1 through 4. The reason for giving thanks in verses 5 through 18. And lastly, the demonstration of giving thanks in verses 19 through to 29. So firstly, the call to give thanks in verses 1 through 4. Let's look at that. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. Notice the the, this kingly figure, this psalmist, he's, he's emphasizing the sum totality of God's people. He's calling all of God's people. He's saying first, Israel, people in general. Then the house of Aaron, that's the priests. And then he, he makes it even more specific and includes everyone and says, all who fear the Lord. So the psalmist or the kingly figure is calling every one of God's people to give thanks to the Lord. Why? Well, verse 1 says, because the Lord is good. And it's not just a general sense of God's goodness. It's God's goodness expressed particularly in His enduring steadfast love. For his steadfast love endures forever. He's saying God's steadfast love is, it lasts forever. It is everlasting. And that's the foundation for the call to give thanks to, to the Lord. Now, what, what does God's steadfast love mean? Well, it's the same love that we learnt about in the book of Ruth a couple of years ago. It's the Hesed love of God. And it can be translated as steadfast love or as loyal love or as loving kindness. It's, it's that covenant love of God where God is fully and wholly committed to his people. It's a love that God has for his people that remains the same all the time, regardless of how the people respond. It's a love that never waxes or wanes. It's a love where God never withholds his love from his people at any point. And so it means that when we as his children wander away from him because of our own sin and rebellion, God will pursue us with this love and he will bring us back to himself and not let us go to our ruin. 
It means as believers when we fail him and are stubborn hearted toward him, God is still committed to love us the same. See, here's the staggering thought for all Christians. God loves you to the max today and every day. God loves you to the max today and every day. He has loved you with an everlasting love, and that love will never, ever change. His love for you as a Christian is the same today as it was yesterday, and it will be exactly the same tomorrow and for all of eternity. Nothing you do or don't do will change God's love for you as a believer. How he loved you in eternity past, even before you were born and you were in his mind, is the same love that he has for you today and will be the same love that he will have for you to eternity future. It is the same committed love. This committed everlasting love that God has for his people never changes. You know, and this is something that all believers from all time should keep in mind. Especially when we are going through difficult circumstances and we are tempted to doubt God or or grumble against him. See, as Christians, we understand that the greatest expression of God's unchanging, steadfast love for undeserving sinners was seen on the cross of Calvary when Jesus died. So regardless of our circumstances, regardless of what we feel today, the cross of Jesus Christ should be the bedrock foundation of our understanding of God's steadfast love for us. Now, as Jesus sang Psalm 118, after that Passover meal, the night before his crucifixion, See, on the one side, Jesus as a man would have been comforted by this psalm as he was reassured of God's everlasting love. Why? Because he was going to bear the full wrath of this God for undeserving sinners like us. But on the other side, Jesus as God would have been reminded that him dying on the cross would be the ultimate way in which God's unfailing love would be expressed for undeserving sinners like us. And that's why we read in Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That's what Jesus was thinking of. 
so that that would be fulfilled, so that that scripture would be written one day by Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to encourage us, to remind us of the cross, to remind us that's where the steadfast love of God is seen. Oh, what a love God has for his people. Oh, that we would not forget his love for us as seen on the cross of Jesus Christ. Oh, that our hearts would be filled with thanks and praise. So with the call to give thanks to God for his goodness that's expressed in his steadfast love, the kingly figure now gives the reason for giving thanks for God's steadfast love. And what he does by this is he gives his testimony and he explains how God has demonstrated his steadfast love by delivering him and thereby his people as well. And so that's what we're going to see in verses 5 through 18, the reason for giving thanks or how God demonstrated his steadfast love by delivering the kingly figure and his people. Now in verses 5 through 9, the, the kingly figure explains generally what happened. Verse 5 says, Out of my distress I called on the Lord, and the Lord answered me and set me free. Now this, this word for distress, it's a word can refer to anything um, that, is, that is narrow and confining. It can mean anything from being in a claustrophobic spot to being in severe anguish. And so the idea is that this kingly figure was in a very tight and difficult spot. That he was in some sort of grave military crisis. And the Lord answered him and set him free and liberated him. And then in verses 6 and 7, he says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. See, in the deep distress that the king, kingly figure found himself, he's saying that his confidence is in the Lord. Because he knew that the Lord was with him and for him because of God's steadfast covenant love. And then verses 8 and 9, there's this refrain now calling on the rest of the people to join in to trust in God as a result. It reads, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Now, when you think about Jesus, and again, thinking that this was the final song that he sang before he went to Gethsemane and to the cross, It says that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26, 38, Jesus' soul was in anguish and sorrow 
to the point of death. See, because the thought of going to the cross and bearing the judgment for sin and death laid heavy on him. And in fact, in Luke's account of this Garden of Gethsemane, we read that Jesus was so in anguish, so in distress, that his sweat then became like drops of blood. And then Hebrews 5, 7, again, speaking of Jesus, it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. See, Jesus prayed in deep anguish and loud cries that God would save him out of death. Not that he would spare him the cross. No, he came to this world to go to the cross. But that finally he would be taken out of death, out from the realm of death. Or in other words, that he would be raised to life, that he would be resurrected. That once it was all done, he was praying that God would raise him from the dead. See, other than the Lord himself, there was no one Jesus trusted to help him on his way to Calvary. I mean, if you think about it, his disciples, his trusty 12, what happened to them? One betrayed him with a kiss, and the other 11 deserted him when he was arrested by the Roman soldiers. Well, aside from them, who else is there? There's Herod, the big king, but we know he's a wicked and evil king. Then there's Pilate, who's more concerned about being in the good books of his superiors. So there was no man he could rely on. The Lord was his only help and hope. In fact, when Pilate threatens Jesus and tells him that he has the power to crucify him. Jesus, in quiet confidence, relying on the Lord, tells him in John 19, 11, you have no authority over me unless it has been given to you from above. We read in 1 Peter 2.23 that when he, speaking about Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did he do? He continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. That he, as he faced turmoil and as he faced his enemies, that he continued to rely on the Lord and place his confidence on him. Jesus had full confidence that the Lord is on his side and, ha- and was his only help, so he didn't need to fear. Nothing could come his way unless the Lord had allowed it. So what an encouragement this psalm would have been as he sung it after the Passover meal. Now this kingly figure he gets more specific about the deliverance, about the details of the deliverance. Verses 10 through 12. It says, All nations surrounded me. 
In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. See, the kingly figure is saying, hey, he was surrounded by enemies on every side. And to emphasize how dire the situation was, he repeats himself four times. They surrounded me. They surrounded me. They surrounded me. They surrounded me. Humanly speaking, there seemed to be no escape, no respite. The enemies were closing in from every side. And then verse 13 adds, I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. You know, a better translation, it could be legitimately translated here, and in fact, some of you with the ESV, you'll see a, um, a footnote perhaps, at least in some of your Bibles, where it can be translated as, instead of I was pushed in the passive, more in the active, you pushed me hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. And what's interesting is that here the psalmist, he's combining all of his enemies into one singular person, and he says, you pushed me hard. And it looked like I was going to be defeated, but the Lord helped me. By the Lord's help, he was able to fend off every effort of the enemy. Again, when you think of Jesus, we know that he was surrounded by enemies all around, right? The Jewish leaders, they hated him, made false accusations against him, got him arrested. Then you had the whole crowd of people, a big mob of people that had now turned against him and they were mocking him and spitting him and crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And then you had the Roman soldiers who beat him and scourged him and stripped him of his clothes and thrust a spear on his side and thrust a crown of thorns on his head and nails on his hands and feet and crucified him. And he became the object of shame and mockery and he was seen as the scum of this world. And yet behind all of that, there was one singular being, Satan himself. The one who hates God and hates Jesus, who was behind it all. And Satan and his minions tried everything in their power to defeat Jesus. The danger was very real, but the victory came because the Lord was on his side. The Lord was his help and deliverer. See, Satan and his minions thought that with Jesus dying on the cross, with all these attacks on every side, now he's being crucified, now he has died, everything is over, we have won. And yet, God raised him from the dead on the third day. 
And it is through his death and resurrection. As Colossians 2.15 says, Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Because it was through his death and resurrection, the very thing that Satan and his minions thought was defeat was the very thing that he used to put them to shame and defeat them. Verses 14 to 16, the psalmist moves on and says, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Now there's shouts of victory sung to the Lord. Why? Because the Lord has delivered his king. And by delivering his king, the Lord has also delivered his people. So all of the people are now rejoicing with the king. The Lord is my strength and my song and my joy and my delight. This kingly figure is saying, hey, it's not my strength. But it's by the Lord's right hand, by his might and power, that all my enemies are defeated and my people and I are saved. Now, interestingly, verses 14 and verses 16, they're taken directly from the song of Moses after the exodus from Egypt. See, for the Old Testament saints, the Exodus event is the greatest act of salvation or deliverance. So they would keep coming back to that and use phraseologies from the Exodus. And so by using the same language from Exodus 15.2 and Exodus 15.6 from the Song of Moses, the psalmist is saying, and he's comparing his experience of the Lord being his strength and song and the deliverance that he has brought about. He's saying, I can compare it to the people of Israel at Exodus. It was similar to that deliverance. And then he goes on to say, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. See, because the Lord is his might and has delivered him from death, the kingly ruler now says, so I will not die, I will live. Death will not have the last word. And I will recount the mighty works of the Lord. And what is he going to do by that? He's going to lead his people to praise God this way. So that the whole congregation of his people would also give praise to God because even they are delivered through his deliverance. And acknowledging the Lord's might and power, the psalmist recognizes that ultimately his sufferings came about from the hand of the Lord. He says that it was a severe discipline from his hand. But he rejoices that God had mercy and didn't give him over to death. 
Now you can think of the very life of Jesus and what this psalm again would have reminded him of, of the things that he would face and how it would have encouraged him. See, the Lord was the strength and song and salvation for Jesus too. Death would not have the final word. He would live and he would be resurrected on the third day. And this psalm, in a sense, was encouraging him as this was on his mind. See, Jesus knew that he was going to suffer the severe discipline or the wrath of his father. But not for his sins, but for the sins of his people. That Jesus would bear the punishment for our sins Or as Isaiah 53 puts it in verse 5. He, that's talking about the Messiah, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And then verse 10 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When a soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. So you can understand the the turmoil and the anguish that Jesus went through because he knew no sin. The one who knew no sin was going to be made sin for our sake. Jesus, though sinless, was going to be punished. The wrath of God was going to be poured out on him. And here's the thing. Unless Jesus died in the place of his people, he would not be able to pay for the wages of their sin, which is death. As their king, Jesus would need to, needed to pay the price for the sin of his people as well as defeat that final enemy, death, so that his people would be free. So Jesus willingly, willingly suffered and died for his people paying sin's wage on behalf of his people. But death didn't conquer him. While it conquers every other man, death did not conquer this God-man. He defeated death, rose triumphantly from the grave by the hand of the Lord, and he lives forevermore. And now Jesus leads his people to sing praise to God and to recount his mighty work of salvation. And because Jesus has been delivered, all who belong to Jesus will also be delivered. And in the words of 1 Corinthians 15, 57, all who have put their trust in Jesus can say, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, this is the hope of every Christian. 
That because Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead, defeating death, for every Christian now, death will not be the last word. That there is life beyond the grave, a life without sin and death lived unto the Lord. What an encouragement this psalm would have been for Jesus as he was going to be betrayed and crucified the next day. That he would be victorious against every enemy because the Lord was on his side. And that he would lead his people to praise God for his mighty work of salvation, even victory over death. And here's the application for us. Because in this whole section, the kingly figure, his understanding was that the Lord was on his side, that the Lord was for him, the Lord was his help, and that's why the deliverance came, and that's why he put his trust and his confidence in the Lord. Here's the application for us as believers. Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? But how do we know God is for us? How do we know God is for us? Answer, the very next verse, Romans 8, 32. Because he did not spare his son, Jesus Christ, but gave him up to die on the cross for our sins. That's how we know God is for us. You think Jesus didn't know that that scripture would be written someday? That's why he went to the cross. As he was reminded through this psalm. And Christian, if God is for me, then what can man do to me? What can death or sickness or persecution or famine do to me? There is nothing that can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. It is a love that is eternal, a love that never lets go, a love that is constant, a love that is demonstrated to me on the cross of Jesus Christ in a most tangible way. And it is a love that will take me beyond the grave to be with my Lord and my Savior. This is the reality of every Christian. And I pray that as we ponder these truths, it would cause us to trust in the Lord and not be afraid of anything that comes our way. And you can see why then this, why this psalm was then so precious to many of the martyrs. Because it, they understood that if their king, King Jesus, loved them and died on their behalf, for their sins and conquered death, then they would have no reason to fear. So that as they faced persecution and death, they had no dread, knowing that death would not have the last word. 
because their king has been resurrected and delivered, they too, as belonging to this king, would be delivered and resurrected, and they would be finally with their beloved savior and king. So the kingly figure, first he calls the people to give thanks, then he gives testimony or the reason for giving thanks in how God has demonstrated his steadfast love. And finally now, there's the demonstration of the giving thanks in verses 19 through to 29. So having won the battle, by the Lord's help, this kingly figure now leads his people to the city gates. And we read in verses 19 through 21, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. I thank you, Lord, that you have answered me and have become my salvation. See, this section is a little bit like Psalm 24, where the king of glory comes to the gates of the city and he demands that the gates be opened so that the victorious king, the king of glory, can enter in. It's quite similar to that. See, the king is demanding entry into the city. But here's the thing. Only the righteous can enter the city of God. So what qualifies this king as opposed to any other king to enter into the city of God? How does one know whether this king is is righteous? Well, it's the fact that the Lord has saved him from all his enemies. The fact that he is not dead and he is alive. Because this is evidence of God's covenant love and of that relationship that he has with the Lord. Or as one commentator put it, his victory is his vindication. His deliverance from death is a seal of divine approval. This kind of person, this kind of king is righteous in the Lord's eyes. Why? Because of that special relationship he has with the Lord because of that covenant relationship he has with the Lord. Because God's favor, God's love, God's steadfast love has been shown to him by delivering him from all his enemies and not leaving him to die. What a reminder and an encouragement this would have been as Jesus sung this hymn. That he, the righteous one, would pay the wage of sin, that is death, and bring about the forgiveness of sins for his people. And having defeated death, his people would now share in his life and victory. And as a result, his people too would be declared righteous. And they too would be able to enter the very presence of the Lord and declare praises. This king 
this righteous king. Because of his deliverance, his people too are delivered. And they're righteous now to enter into God's presence. And when you think about, again, Jesus in the narrative. When Jesus died on the cross, Matthew 27, 51 says that the, the thick curtain in the temple that provided a barrier to the presence of God, the most holy place from the holy place, that thick curtain was torn from top to bottom. And it signified that because of, that Jesus, because of what he had done, because he was victorious, he had secured for his people free access into the presence of God. So now the kingly figure and his people go through the city gates and the people begin to sing joyfully about their king. And this is what they say, verses 22 and 23. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Now the builders here, it refers to the enemies of the king. The enemies who were building their own empires and kingdoms. See, they didn't want anything to do with the stone, the stone referring to this particular king. They didn't want anything to do with this king or his plans or his kingdom or his people. As far as the enemy builders were concerned, this king was of no value. And so they rejected him and wanted to get rid of him. They even tried to kill him. But look at what has happened. This stone that was rejected, the Lord chose him and he has become the cornerstone. See, the cornerstone, it's a, it's a foundation stone that sets the, the, the lines and the, the, the balance of the whole entire building. So you take that one cornerstone off, the lines and the whole building will just uh, come fall apart. So it was the most important stone because the whole building, in essence, was built around this cornerstone. And so what it's saying is the Lord has made this king the centerpiece of his plan and kingdom. He has become the cornerstone. Again, what an encouragement this would have been for Jesus. Knowing that he would be rejected by everyone and he would become, and yet he would become the chief cornerstone of God's kingdom and plan. You see, as far as the Jewish leaders were concerned, he seemed like a nobody. I mean, he seemed like just, you know, normal Jack walking down the street. There was nothing special about him. There was nothing impressive about him. He looked very ordinary. He didn't look like the conquering king of kings. And so they rejected him and they killed him. But he would be raised to life to become the foundation of God's kingdom and plan. You know, in fact, Jesus uses these very words from Psalm 118, 22 and 23 to make this point, to apply it to himself. 
as he tells the parable of the tenants to the Jewish leaders in Matthew 21. He tells the Jewish leaders uh, in the parable of a set of tenants that uh, were given a vineyard to look after by the owner. And when it was harvest time, the owner sent some of his servants to collect the profit. But the tenants, they beat and stoned and killed his servants. And then finally, the owner sent his son. But the tenants killed the son too. And Jesus asked the religious leaders, what do you think the owner will do with the tenants? And so the religious leaders reply, oh, the owner will kill the tenants and lend the vineyard to other tenants. And then Jesus quotes this, this psalm, Psalm 118, verses 22 to 23 in Matthew 21, 42, in that parable. And it says at the end of the parable, that the religious leaders understood that Jesus was talking about them in reference to him. They got exactly what he was talking about, that he was the rejected stone who would become the cornerstone, and they were the ones who were rejecting him. Later, after Jesus is taken up in glory, Apostle Paul will pick up the same language and say in Ephesians 2.20 that Jesus is now the cornerstone of the church, the body of believers. He's the very foundation on which the Christendom is now built. So the people are now in the, in the gates of the city. And they're singing praises about their king and saying, this is the Lord's doing. And notice in verse 24 what the people, as they sing, they say. It says, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You know, often this verse is used in weddings or sometimes it's used on a, uh, any given Sunday morning worship service. Or sometimes as a way of thanking the Lord for any given day, just to say, oh, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. But see, in context here, this day that the Lord has made is what? It's the day when the stone was rejected and ultimately the stone became the cornerstone. That's what this day is referring to. That this day is the Lord has made is the day when Jesus died and rose again and became the cornerstone of God's plan. And because of that day that the Lord has made, we can rejoice and be filled with hope every single day. The people continue to sing. Verses 25 and 26. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Now, here's a question. Why would the people sing, save us, O Lord, if they've already been saved? Well, it seems to be that 
that the people are saying, now that your, your king, our king, has brought us deliverance, and we have come back to Jerusalem, continue to save us. Meaning, may all that is involved in this salvation be fully realized. And you know, in these verses, the Hebrews saw this as an expectation of the ultimate fulfillment being in the Messiah, that ultimate king who would come and bring about ultimate salvation. And this is exactly what the crowds acknowledge when Jesus was entering into Jerusalem on a donkey in Matthew 21.9, where it reads, And the crowds that went before him that followed and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. You know, Hosanna, you know what it basically means? It means save us, O Lord. That's what it means. It's just the Greek transliteration of what the Hebrew says. So by singing this part of Psalm 118, the crowds, the people were acknowledging that Jesus is the ultimate Messiah King and they were calling out to him to bring about that ultimate salvation. I mean, there is a sense in which even we as believers can continue to sing this. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. As a way of saying, save us, Lord. You know, the, the full realization of your salvific plan made come to pass, even as Jesus will return once again. Back to the people who are in the city of God and in the temple of God in Psalm 118. They continue to sing. Verse 27 says, The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal, bind the festal cords with horns, with cords up to the horns of the altar. They're saying the Lord has made his light to shine upon us. And this is part of the ironic blessing that most of us know from Numbers 6 where it says, the Lord bless you and keep you. May uh, the may Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. So it's part of that ironic blessing that's now being stated here. And what they're saying is this, that the Lord has shown favor and his blessing is on us. And they're calling on to, to offer the animal sacrifice as, as a thank offering to the Lord in this worship and thanks. You know, there's some irony here in verses 26 and 27 as it relates to Jesus. See, because on the cross, the people around mocked him saying, this is the king of Jews? I mean, really? I mean, look at him crucified there, helpless. He saved others, let him help himself. See, what they were doing is instead of blessing Jesus and calling out to him 
saying, blessed be the name of our Lord. Save us, O Lord. They were mocking him, saying, oh, savior of the world? You can't even save yourself. What a joke. But let me ask you to consider this. Why did he not save himself on that cross? You know, just, he could have just thought it and all the angels would come and wipe out all of humanity. Or he could have just thought it and everything would cease to be. But why did he not save himself from that cross? Oh, the irony of it. Because he was saving wretched sinners like us. He was dying in the place of sinners like us because of his steadfast love. I wonder if there's anyone here this morning that is not a Christian. I want you to understand that God is a loving God and he has revealed himself through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But I also want you to understand that he is a just God. And he's a God that cannot wink at sin. That sin has to be punished. He is good and just, and therefore, like a good judge will punish a criminal, he, as a good God, has to punish, as a just God, has to punish sin. Then how is it that an unjust, unrighteous person like you and me can receive this love of God and God be just? Well, he provided that way through Jesus Christ. Because the justice of God, the wrath of God that should have fallen on my head fell on Jesus. And he died. And he rose again, paying the price for sin, defeating death, providing a way for sinners like you and me to be made right with God. Oh, friend, if you're here this morning, can you not see the love of God? Why would you reject him? I mean, why would you reject him? It is illogical even. For a God who is so loving and has done this, why would you reject him? Friend, if you say today, I believe in the Lord Jesus, I believe in what he has done on the cross, then I would say to you, continue to believe and turn from your sin, turn from trusting in yourself and continue to trust in the Lord and follow after him. Because that's the evidence that you truly believe, that all the days of your life from now on, you continue to put your trust in him and follow him and you don't trust in yourself nor go back to your sin.
the last two verses. Verse 28, it says, You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. There's a sense in which the, now the kingly figure, again, is so overwhelmed by what God has done. He is just, he, you can see even the personal note, My God, my God, I give thanks to you. And for us as Christians, we can say the same, right? My God, my God, I give thanks to you. God the Father for your steadfast love. God the Son for your steadfast love, for willingly going to die on the cross for my sake. Thank you. Oh, what a love. God has. No one, no one ever will or has loved us this way. And so in conclusion, the psalmist goes back to where he started. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your steadfast love that you have demonstrated through your Son, our Lord Jesus. Thank you that he died and he rose again, and now he has given us his life, that resurrection life, that life that we will have beyond the grave. Help us each day, therefore, to in light of that. We love you, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.